Um, I'll I'll read our text for us in just a moment. We'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that Romans 8 is just one of those chapters of Scripture that is just so abundantly filled with God's encouraging kindness towards us. I, I would dare say it's one of the sweetest chapters in all of Scripture. Um, So just to set the stage for where we're going to be looking this evening, um, if you look just briefly at verses 14 through 17, you see that Paul has been talking about our adoption as sons and daughters of God, meaning that for those who are in the family of Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. And we have right now in this life, we have all the rights and privileges belonging to the sons of God. And then Paul says this in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and heirs and fellow heirs with Christ. So we, he's reminding us of this inheritance we have because of Christ and his work on our behalf. But then at the end of verse 17, he changes gears pretty abruptly. Paul writes, Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. You get this quick turn of a corner from being adopted into our suffering. Suffering that is sure to come for all those who belong to Christ. And then throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul addresses more and more this idea of suffering as a Christian. But I want to make it clear from the start of the sermon that Paul is not saying that suffering is a requirement for salvation. A new Christian ought not to read this passage and think, Well, I haven't suffered enough for Christ. Am I really saved? No. Remember, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're not saved by, you know, faith plus suffering. It's not how salvation works. And yet, the New Testament reminds us time and time again that as Christians, we will suffer from time to time. The Apostle Peter even writes to us saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. It's a part of the Christian life. And generations of believers before us have suffered for the sake of the gospel. Countless number of Christians around the world today are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so when these times of suffering come, we need to return back to Romans 8 and remember the truths taught in this passage about our suffering. So let me read for us now from Romans 8, verses 18 through 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Would you take heed how you listen? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise that it never returns void. So we ask that you would nourish us this evening. That you would nourish our faith, renew us today. That we might continue to live as becomes the followers of Christ. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, right from the start of the passage, right in verse 18, we get the big idea for this section of Scripture. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What he's saying is that if you were to compare all of the sufferings you might experience in this life, and you compare that with the glory that is to come, it's not even a fair fight. You can think of those old, you know, the scales of justice. And, and you take all of the sufferings of this present life and put it on this side and all of the, 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 the glory of the life to come. Every time the scale does this. Pastor Kent Hughes, who is the pastor of College Church in Wheaton, he put it this way. We can compare a thimble of water with the sea, but we cannot compare our sufferings with the coming glory. What a great picture of that is that. Now we'll come back to this idea of sufferings in a moment, but I want us to, to, to really dwell for a moment on how incredible the promise of glory is. And when Paul says the glory that is to be revealed to us, he's referring to the consummation of the kingdom of God. He's referring to these last days when all of God's people from every century of human existence, from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be risen from the grave and will get to be in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. I think if you were to really look at the Greek of this text, Paul himself is, is, is longing for more words to describe the glory to come. It's too unfathomable. It's too incredible and marvelous for him. And he's comparing it with our sufferings. And I think that the scope of that word sufferings is really quite wide. You know, narrowly, he, he is referring to the persecution that the Roman Christians were to face. And there's Christians around this world who are suffering persecution at that moment. And so he's saying to them, no matter how unbearable that persecution becomes, it's still true that the glory to come far outweighs your current suffering. But I think we can expand this idea of sufferings to include really all of the types of suffering that we experience as humans in a fallen world. I think that that, that actually does justice to the greater context of Romans 8. If you look down at verse 35, he gives the list of some of these sufferings. He mentions various types of tribulations, diseases, persecutions, famines, or even poverty and war. And so Paul has you know, all of our existence in this fallen world in mind. Because he knows that every corner of earth has been stained by sin. And yet Paul says, even if you lump together every cancer diagnosis, every lost job, 
every death of a loved one, every ounce of persecution on behalf of the gospel, pile it all together, and even still the weight of glory outshines all of it. And because of that truth, because of how glorious our future in heaven is going to be, we are called in this life to wait, to wait eagerly for that glory to come. Let's take the remaining verses of our passage in three sections, all about waiting. First, we'll see all creation waits. Second, we'll see believers wait. And third, we'll see that the Spirit helps us while we wait. So first, all creation waits. This is what Paul says in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here we see this idea that the created order itself in some way is waiting. Meaning plants and animals and stars and planets and armadillos and squirrels and all of creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. You know, this personification of nature, this actually happens frequently throughout Scripture. Just give you two brief examples. Um, Psalm 96 says, Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. And of course, trees don't have vocal cords. They don't sing, and yet they glorify God through their beauty. Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. Now, of course, the sand and the desert and the cactuses, they don't rejoice. And yet, there's a sense in which they are pointing us forward to something that is to come. So what Paul is doing here in verse 19, he's saying that all creation is waiting for the return of Christ. And this makes sense when you remember in the big story of Scripture that creation was affected by the fall in Genesis 3. And when God is... You know, coming into the garden in Genesis 3, he says this. God himself says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So we see that creation itself fell in the fall. It was cursed. Or to use the phrase from Romans 8, creation was subjected to futility because of the curse that God put on it. So creation has decay, it has disease, it has death, and so it waits, it longs for the last days. Look at how Paul describes this in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth for now. And we should smile and and, and really be amused a little bit at the fact that Paul is writing these words. Paul, the, the man who lived a single life and was likely never in the room for the birth of a child, is using childbirth as an analogy. But it's a good picture of just how eager the whole of the universe is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. It's like the pains of childbirth. You know, if you were to open up my wife Nicole's phone and go to her photos app and then find the favorites folder, you know, that's where you put all the pictures you want to have quick access to. I can guarantee you, if you scroll back, you'll find pictures in her favorites folder of each of our three boys in the moments after their birth. Right? She's got these newborn photos in the hospital. But in that favorites folder, you will not find a single picture of the labor process leading up to the birth. Right? That, that's not the part you dwell on and reflect on. Instead, you look, f- you look for those photos of the birth of the children. You celebrate that. 
A new mother holding their baby instantly forgets all of the pain she just experienced in the hours beforehand. She's just overjoyed with this new child in her arms. And that's what Paul is saying, that that creation is waiting, it's groaning, looking for this final day to come. As in the, the whole universe is leading up to that point in human history when Christ will finally return. But in the meantime, the creation waits with eager groaning. I want to make a brief point of application here. You know, as we remember that creation itself fell in the fall of Genesis 3, we need to remember that work will always be hard in this life. You know, that, that, that work is hard. When you get to the office or the job site tomorrow morning or when you wake up in the morning and get ready to take care of your kids or whatever work looks like in your stage of life, work is going to be hard because of the fall in Genesis 3. And when things go wrong at work, the question is not, why is everything going wrong? Right? We shouldn't be surprised when things don't go well. The question we need to ask is, how can I look to Christ even when things seem to be falling apart? How can I fix my eyes on him waiting for the glory that is to be revealed? So creation itself is waiting. Let's move on to our second heading, believers. We wait. Paul says this in verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is speaking in the first person plural, that we are awaiting that glorious future. I want to address that word groaning. It's a rare Greek word. In the book of Romans, it's only used here in our passage three times. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it's only used six times. So so what exactly is this groaning about? What are these believers groaning about? There's something unique that Christians, those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, there's something unique that we groan about. It's true that all of mankind groans over the adversities common to this life. All of mankind groans about how hard work is. All humans groan about diseases and hardships. But Paul is specifically mentioning believers. So the question is, what are believers groaning about that nobody else does? I would suggest that as believers, we groan over our sin. We groan over the presence of sin that remains in our hearts. We groan waiting for the day when Christ will return and remove the presence of sin from our hearts. This is what Paul was referring to earlier in the book of Romans in chapter 7, where he's just so frustrated with the sin that remains in his heart. To the point where he ends chapter 7 crying out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's groaning in that passage, groaning over his sin should cause us to do a little self-introspection. Ask, when was the last time that I groaned over my sin? When was the last time I was truly saddened by the sin that remained in my heart? I fear that many of us, myself included, can become dull to the severity of sin. We become dull over time like the kitchen knife that can't cut through the tomato anymore. 
We need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to sharpen our senses and our awareness of our own sin that remains. We need the Holy Spirit's help with that. Paul writes again in verse 23 that we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons. Now this should make us pause for a second. If you're thinking critically and thinking theologically about verse 23, you should ask, what does Paul mean by saying that we are waiting for our adoption? How is it that we today in this life are waiting for adoption? After all, doesn't adoption happen simultaneously with our justification? Yes, it does. But to make sense of what Paul is saying in this passage, we need to remember something that that Paul does regularly throughout his writing. This this framework of the already, not yet. Right? That some things are already true, but not yet true to their fullest extent. It is true here that Christians have been adopted by God. We already have our justification. We have been declared righteous before God because of the atoning work of the person of Christ on the cross for our sins. We are justified. We are adopted into his family. And yet... There's a part of our adoption that is not fully real yet and won't be until Christ returns. That's the not yet of this verse. That as believers, we don't get to enjoy the full privileges of our adoption. You can think of this as like in the terms of an earthly adoption. Imagine a a king or a queen adopting a young orphan boy from the streets. You know, on the day of his adoption, that young boy is fully a prince. He is fully, you know, an heir of the kingdom. But he doesn't have his full inheritance, right? That won't come until later in his life. That's the idea behind verse 23, that every single Christian is currently adopted into God's family, and yet we wait. What are we waiting for? Friends, we're waiting for our resurrection, On the last day, we're waiting for Christ to return and bring his people into glory. We wait eagerly. We wait longingly. We wait with eager hope for that moment when our bodies and souls will be united back together and we'll get to spend all of heaven with Christ forever. So as we wait, we wait expectantly. We wait with hope. That's what Paul's saying in verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is, that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We hope for what we cannot see, friends. What we can't see yet is the, the fullness of the blessed everlasting life with Christ. Now think about this idea of hope. Hope in the things to come. Hope in the new resurrection life that's waiting for us on the other side of eternity. Friends, that hope has to be the theme of our lives. For as long as the Lord gives us life, for as long as we remain on this earth in whatever kind of suffering comes our way, we wait with an ever-present hope in the age to come. Now Paul is going to bring us back to where the rubber meets the road in our life. That in this life, even as we wait expectantly for that coming glorious day, for as long as we remain, we will face suffering. But praise God that we don't do it alone. Right? 
We have the Spirit. This is our third heading. The Spirit helps us while we wait. Look at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Friends, the Spirit is our helper in this life. While we wait for the glory to come, the Spirit helps us. We've already seen throughout Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit is our helper. If you were to take time to read the full of Romans chapter 8, you would see just how abundantly clear it is that the Spirit his role is to help us in our walk with Christ. In verse 2, the Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. Verse 5, the Spirit sets our mind on the things of the Spirit. In verse 9, the Spirit dwells with us. In verse 13, He gives life to our mortal bodies. In verse 14, we are told to live by the Spirit. In verse 16, that the Spirit gives us assurance of our salvation. Friends, the Holy Spirit is your helper. And here in verse 26, we see that the Spirit is our helper, especially in how He prays for you. That He prays for you with groanings too deep for words. That He prays for you when you don't even know what to pray for. I wonder if you've been in that place before where you're not even sure what to pray. That you're so shaken, you're not even sure how to pray. You know that you need God's help. You know that you need Him, but you don't even know how you want Him to move. Even and especially in those moments, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. He prays for you. Now notice that I just referred to the Holy Spirit as a He. Think in our common English it's common to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it, as an impersonal, distant being or a, a force. That's not how Scripture speaks of the Spirit. Look at verse 26. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Not the Spirit itself, Himself. The Holy Spirit has personhood. I just want to encourage you to be careful about the language we use when we talk about the Holy Spirit. He is God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which reminds us that when we pray, the whole Trinity is at work in our prayers. Prayer itself is Trinitarian in nature. That we as believers pray to God the Father, who's our creator and our sustainer. We pray in the name of Jesus, God the Son, who's our great high priest. And we pray through the mediation and intercession of the Holy Spirit, who himself is praying for us. And think of it this way, that the, that the Holy Spirit takes our, our prayers that are often, if we're honest, if we're, they're, they're ignorant and wrong-headed, he takes them, he purifies them, and he presents them to the Father on our behalf. And that's true even when our words fail us. Even when the sufferings of this present life are so great that you can't find the words to pray, even then the Holy Spirit prays for you. you know, earlier this week, 
Um, just a couple days ago, it was the five-year anniversary of the passing of my father-in-law. He was a, a wonderful father and husband and a faithful pastor. Passed away from cancer. And in, in those last days, Nicole and I got to be in the room with him, with our extended family. We, we sang hymns together. We prayed together. And, and Joe, in those final hours, all he could do was squeeze our hands and groan. That's all he could do. He couldn't put words together anymore. Just groaned. And I have to believe that he was groaning for heaven. That he was groaning for the new heavens and the new earth when his failing body would be restored, would be perfected. And he would have everlasting life without an ounce of cancer left in his body. Friends, the day will come when we come face to face with death. In God's providence, you may be in the place where you can't even put a sentence together. Even in those moments, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you. He's helping you in the midst of your weakness. We ask, how does he help you? How is he helping you in those moments? Well, he, he helps you by reminding you of his promises and lifting your eyes to heaven. He uses the word of God and the promises here to lift your gaze to the glory that is to be revealed. No matter what the suffering looks like in your life, the Holy Spirit helps you by lifting your gaze to heaven. Remember how our passage started in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Brothers and sisters, by the Holy Spirit's help, you can cling to that promise. No matter what suffering God's providence may bring your way, remember the incredible worth and weight of the glory that is to come. That one day you will get to experience the fullness of the presence of God in all of His splendor and majesty and glory. That one day you will dwell with God and the fullness of your adoption as a son and daughter of God will be realized. That one day you will be released and totally removed of the presence of sin in your hearts. That day will come. It will certainly come. John writes about it this way in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, he's picturing this future glory that is to come. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friends, that day is coming. It will come. And so as you live in this life, as you wait for that day, wait with eager expectation and wait with the Holy Spirit's help. He will be your helper. He will. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for the day of your return. But we thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our helper now. 
who intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Lord, please comfort us, encourage us, and lift our eyes to heaven. Amen.